The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us every Wednesdays from 10 to 11 Eastern live. And, of course, at the end of the show, we archive it, so you can listen to it anytime. Also, my, and I keep saying it's my new show, but it's no longer a new show. You can listen to that, too. Thursday mornings, I co-host uh, The Social Workers on WCDB-FM 90.9 in Albany, New York. We have two guests this morning. The first guest is Kate Zuckel, author of Dirty Minds, Dirty Minds, How Our Brains Influence Love, Sex, and Relationships. And we're going to find out what is love and why does it torture, delight, and transform us so. Uh, second guest is Ken Solon, and his new book is Act Like a Man. Men don't get it, and they never will, many of us say, particularly women. But Ken says, no, that's not so. So we're going to find out... Uh, all about uh, his transformation and his, his new book, Act Like a Man. But first, Kate Sukel. Okay, you know, the opening of the book, we all know what love is. We all think we know what love is. But the big question is, I guess, that you answer in this book, why do we fall in love? What actually goes on in our brains when we love someone? Um, yes. It's all new research, isn't it? I mean, you're based in science and love and mixing the two and body chemistry and brain chemistry. You know, it, it is um, new and groundbreaking research, although there have been many scientists who have been studying parts of love um, for decades. Uh, they just wouldn't have called it love. They might have called it pair bonding um, or uh, maternal behavior, um, but they avoided the L word like the plague, like the dirty, dirty word it is. <laughs> and um, dirty, dirty minds. <laughs> yes, um, and because it was, there was this idea that love simply wasn't scientific. It wasn't something we could study. Um, and yet, you know, I don't think that that's the case, obviously, because it's a universal human phenomenon. It's something that we all feel. Um, even, you know, reading poetry or books that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, we can, you know, capture those kind of feelings and, um, you know, now that we know more and more that the brain is the basis of behavior, why not look at it through this kind of lens? Okay, so that's what you've done. And I'm getting mm -hmm. back to that question we started the interview with, like, what is love? I mean, I can sit and talk to my girlfriends and I have, you know, ad nauseum about what is love and is it just sex or is it just lust or is it you know, uh, trusting somebody and, you know, all the kinds of adjectives we've attached to, to love. But you actually, I want to get right into this because right. what is love? I mean, can, can we define it in terms of how our brain responds? Is that what you're saying? 
Yes. And um, the basically, romantic love has a unique signature in the brain. There's been neuroimaging work that was pioneered um, by a university college London professor named Samir Zeki, as well as Helen Fisher, who's an evolutionary biologist at Rutgers University, that has looked at the brain using neuroimaging, um, particularly functional magnetic resonance imaging techniques, to see what happens in the brain when people profess to be romantically in love with someone, passionately in love with someone. Um, and Helen Fisher's work in particular has sort of found three systems. Um, one area that is important to romantic love, uh, that feeling of being head over heels. Uh, a second system um, that is pretty much your lust system, sex. And then a third for attachment. Um, so that might be the way that you feel about your partner after 50 years together. Maybe you don't want to uh, jump their bones anymore, but you still like them a whole lot. Um, you're very attached. And it can also be the way that you feel about your, your children or good friends or your family. So um, are you saying, and you know, uh, Kate, because I forgot and I, in your introduction, and you're not only an author, but I just want to make sure everyone knows how credible you are because you, ha- you graduated in MS, you have an MS in engineering psychology from Georgia Tech, and you write for the New Scientist, USA Today, the Washington Post, et cetera. So right. we can talk more about you personally, but I, I do want to kind of give that as the, the backdrop. But Kate, you, okay, so there are three, that you can actually, are you saying, for us lay people, that if you are romantically involved with somebody, you know, you feel romantic about someone, that there's a certain part of the brain that actually lights up. Or if you are just lusting after them, another part lights up. Or if you're just simply attached to companion, trusting, another part lights up if you are... Yes. Okay. That, that is what Helen Fisher's work has shown. But not only that, but there's a, lot, there's a fair amount of overlap in these systems. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, because even if you are very, very attached to your partner of 25 years, as we all know, uh, you know, adultery happens. So even when love may still be there, um, sex can sometimes, uh, you know, lead to love. Uh, attraction can sometimes lead to attachment. All these things, all these systems work together, um, and they're designed to work together, um, obviously, because you... you you know, once you fall in love, hopefully you'll have sex and then have babies and want to attach to the babies and your partner and raise them together. Um, but these systems are also designed so that they don't always work so well together. Um, and so then I think that... I'm sorry? Yeah, give us an example of that when they don't work. Um, well, you know, again, uh, you could be in a very happy marriage um, and yet you meet somebody and, you know, you're, you just find them irresistible. So even though you have this very strong attachment and maybe even are still romantically in love with someone, you know, that lust system can come in and sometimes override it. Um, Kate, then doesn't that have, doesn't that, if if we can really, if we can, I guess we should substantiate that or validate that scientifically, then what does that say for monogamy? I mean, monogamy is maybe just a a made-up, sociological system that we need in order to keep families together and have someone take care of the kids and be responsible for uh, taking care of their spouses, whatever, and that monogamy really doesn't fit into our uh, scientific brain in terms of how we feel or lust after someone? Because you're saying you have this great marriage, but then the lust part of your brain is attracted to the woman 20 years younger just for lust, not for love. Well, let me let me sort of answer that two ways. Okay. So, in terms of 
you know, the brain science way, all these three systems, the love, the lust, the attachment, these are in sort of the low parts of your brain, the evolutionary, uh, very old parts of your brain. So humans have evolved. We have these frontal lobes. We can always choose. So even if that lust system is making your heart beat faster and, uh, you know, really attracting you to someone, you always have the choice to remain monogamous. And certainly many people don't cheat for just that reason. They don't want to hurt. They may have the opportunity, but they decide that the motive isn't important enough, you know, to, to hurt their partner potentially. Um, but the second part of that is, you know, there's a lot of talk always about whether monogamy is natural. And certainly if you look at many of the animal species that are studied for pair bonding and monogamous behaviors, they're not totally monogamous. They may pair up with a partner for life, but that doesn't mean that they're sexually monogamous. Um, but it's very hard to get funding to try to study um, the difference between the two. Uh, so I think it's important for readers who are reading these, uh, you know, little snippets of scientific studies to understand that socially monogamous and sexually monogamous are not always the same thing. Um, but I would also add to that that there's a lot of stuff that we as humans, I, I don't think whether monogamy is, quote, natural is the right question, because uh, obviously we've, we've come a long way from uh, natural living with our iPads and big screen TVs and um, you know, our, our evolution of these frontal lobes. Um, I think the question is monogamy, is monogamy possible? And, of course, it is. But you have to decide when your, your brain is weighing these risks and rewards, you know, really what your priorities are and make that decision based on that. Okay, I understand that, and we do have choices, and it is possible, but it's probably not probable. I mean, when you look at the statistics, you know, certainly with men, and then... Women are catching up to them, but maybe, um, but we do have choices, okay. But our brain is hardwired, is what you're saying, for certain, for just from just a physical standpoint, right? I mean, it's hardwired for these three different categories romantic, lust, and attachment relationships. Um, hardwired is, is a, it's kind of a, a, a tricky word for me. I would say that there is something in our brains, in our um, evolutionary background, that makes romantic love a drive. As much as food or, you know, drink, there is something that in, in our biology that is, in our neurobiology, that is propelling us to seek out that mate. Um, but hardwired, here's the tricky part, um, epigenetics, which is a blossoming field, um, is which showing is that... We're not necessarily all that hardwired for anything. We have some pretty strong wires in our brains and networks and circuits, but they're not um, completely uh, impenetrable. Um, they can be ma they're malleable. You mean you can? Yes, like, so, I, I yeah, I read in they, your book. They, they, yes, they don't have to be that way. Basically, epigenetics is this new study that's showing um, that the environments can actually change the way that our genes express themselves. So it can up the amount of a certain protein that is expressed or it can reduce it, and that changes the whole neurobiological landscape. So in the past, we really have sort of had all of our discussions about human behavior within the framework of this nurture-nature debate. Uh, it was all nurture, it was all nature, it's biology, no, it's environment. And, I, you know, we've sort of come to the point now where we say it's a little bit of both, 
but we still want to emphasize one or the other. In your yeah, book, you have a chapter that uh, yeah, epigenetics is showing that it's almost. I'm sorry. I said in your book there's a chapter relating yes. to what we're talking about now, the cheeseburger effect, that when your mother was pregnant with you, all she wanted to eat was cheeseburgers at fast food places? Yes. So that, is this what you're talking So if you do something wrong and you make a mistake, you call it the cheeseburger effect? She ate cheeseburgers, affected your brain, and yes. this is what happened. joke about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's not just cheeseburgers. I yep. mean, basically, scientists are now showing that everything, there is no teasing nature and nurture apart. The two of them are involved in this very intricate dance. And so, you know, how your parents are, how your past relationships have been, um, the particular point in your life, all of these have a bearing and, you know, can change these these circuits and these love systems in the brain. Uh, Well, Kate, what about, uh, let's say you have parents who fight all the time. They stay married. They never get divorced but they're always battling with one another. And you, on some level, experience that from day one. And and are you saying that that will affect, it's your environment, but it also really physically or, or chemically has an impact on your developing system that has to do with romantic love, lust, and attachment, so it will affect your relationships later on? Yes, I mean, it, and it's not just love, lust, and attachment. It can also affect your stress responses. Um, Moshe, uh, Moshe Schiff, who's one of the scientists at McGill University that I spoke to about epigenetics, um, you know, he said that a lot of times they talk about sort of um, hardware and software when it comes to epigenetics. Your, your genome, your DNA is the hardware, and the epigenome is the software. But he says the mother is the programmer. She is preparing that offspring with all those environmental cues of, you know, what kind of world they they need to be prepared to live in. Does that include, uh, obviously, in utero, we're talking is right, right from the yes. conception. Mm-hmm. Starting it's on kind conception. Of scary. I mean, if you think of it, the, the, the effect, I mean, because when you get pregnant then, I mean, um, uh, you really may feel that you have to be so vigilant or about, how, you know, what you eat and not just, you know, whether or not you drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes, but even... More detail. I mean, it really could put you in a, a nervous tailspin, I think, when you got pregnant, if you realize that just everything that you do is going to affect the, that growing fetus. Right. The, the nice thing, though, and I think, you know, there's so many brilliant neuroscientists out there, and, and speaking with um, both Dr. Schiff as well as um, Francis Champagne, who uh, is a professor at Columbia University, you know, they don't like to make this sort of good mother-bad mother distinction that you have to be, like, hypervigilant because it's not really a judgment call like that. Your, bio- you know, your, your biology is set up to take those environmental cues to prepare you for the world that you're going to inhabit. You can imagine that, you know, in some places you need those cues um, if, if, you know, mom has a fatty diet, if that's the only kind of food that's available, then your body has to be able to be set up to process it. If you live in a stressful environment or in, um, you know, perhaps even a dangerous environment, your body and your neurobiology, be, uh, neurobiology should be set up in order to deal with it. Um, so once you take the judgment away from it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and, as a mother myself and, you know, lots of friends with mothers who are raising two kids in what they think are the, the same um, environments and then, you know, seeing them grow up to be two totally different people, 
I think this idea of epigenetics makes sense. There's just, it's, it's really impossible to study biology without also considering all of the environmental influences. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and uh, I, I know that uh, that's another one of your I can, uh, your uh, websites that we travel savvy mom dot com. So you have yes. a whole <laughs> other area that you that you that you work in. But you know, I think that whole thing about mothers and children, and and you're right, thinking that you're doing the same. I mean, I have three boys. You know, always I'm fa- they, they're in their twenties now, but they're you know that you're doing the same thing for all three of them, and you know, equal time and equal this, but you know, it, things are not equal. They they may be somewhat fair, but they're not necessarily equal because they grow up in entirely different environments. Or, I mm-hmm. mean, there's just, yeah, depending on the birth order, depending on what you were doing at the time you were pregnant or all kinds of things, as you're saying. But also depending on who they are, and this is where it gets tricky, even if you put them in exactly the same environments, if, say, you know, there was some kind of a strange, odd experiment where we could actually do this and you were given a script and you treated each of them the same, then you have their biology. Their biology is going to be just a little bit different. You still wouldn't end up with these clones. Um, And I think this is really important when you start thinking about um, love and relationships because, of course, you know, there are so many self-help books that want to really distill it down to the lowest common denominator. You do these five things, not only can you find love, but you can keep love. You do this, you can attract someone. But there's already so many variables, probably many that that we don't even, wouldn't even conceive of at this point, at play. And then you add in another person with all those crazy variables as well, and you have, you know, something that's very tricky to study. There are no easy answers. There are no, you know, five foolproof tips to making him love you. Um, and I think that that's, that's important because so often, you know, I hear my girlfriends say, oh, gosh, well, I just don't think anyone's ever going to love me or there's something wrong with me. And um, it, it's kind of freeing to know, well, no, actually, there's not that there's something wrong with everybody, but, you know, we're, we have this very unique biology that, you know, reacts in a very unique way to the environment. I have a question that that I want to. I don't know if this is possible. If you wanted to put it in practical terms, maybe not now, but you know, years from now, as this this obviously this process is studied more. I mean, if you took somebody that say you were planning to marry, you'd lived with this person for two or three years, so you had a relationship with them, and then you go and you go into a, a scientific situation and and you can evaluate your. Uh, brain responses to this person, I mean, to find out whether is this person really somebody who would be good for you in terms of your attachment or how sexually attracted you are or, you know, your romantic involvement, that you actually could have a, a you know, look at it on a scale if you went into a laboratory, you know, showing pictures of this person or however they did it. it you know, it sounds so utopian or, you know, pie in the sky, mm-hmm. and yet there are companies that are doing that already. There's a dating service, and for uh, a cool grand, they look at a potential, they match you by what's called an MHC complex or major compatibility complex. Um, And this is sort of your unique um, odor print, so to speak. um, It's made up of your immune system genes. And um, it's thought that your special body odor, which is built up from these genes, is what attracts you to another person or makes you attractive to another person, rather. So um, 
there's already a company out there that says, here, give us your money, and we'll, we'll tell you whether you guys have the right kind of optimal compatibility. But, if, again, if we, there's more to it than that. You know, he may be a really good genetic match, but he may talk or move or dance or just be totally obsessed with Monty Python shows or something in there that means that the two of you could not live together um, you know, no matter how optimal your offspring may be. So I think that there's a lot more at play, but certainly uh, people want there to be. There's a clamoring for some kind of easy answer. Give me a, you know, some kind of genetic test to show me that my partner's not going to cheat. Give me some tests to know this person's the one for me. Uh, tell me how, uh, you know, I can make sure that this is happily ever after. But, Kate, and, couldn't this just be a part of the information that you have? It's not the answer, like you say, because it might come up, you know, scientifically you're compatible. But then, yeah, the guy's, you know, goes out every night and, you know, sees Monty Python films or whatever, and that isn't compatible. But if you used it as a piece, because traditionally we look at people in terms of their socioeconomic background and their job and, there, you know, all the different kinds of markers we have, and we put that into the picture plus our attraction for them, and then we decide whether or not we're going to get married. Maybe it's not conscious, but it's there, right? So you could take this information and just add to it. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting, in talking to some of the attraction researchers, you know, they found that sort of beware of the list. Um, you know, the list can actually work against you. And I think women especially, you know, we want to, um, we have this idea of this ideal partner. And um, he's going to be good looking and he's going to be tall and he's going to be great with kids and, you know, probably have a good job and make a lot of money. But um, by discounting people um, based on those things, we may miss out on a terrific match. Um, somebody who may not meet those ideal criteria, but instead of, you know, giving us what we want, actually gives us what we need. Um, and I think most of us know relationships like that. Um, so most of these attraction researchers sort of talk about put aside the list and really sort of try to think with your gut. Um, because our brains um, are really adept at unconsciously processing all of these signals from people. So, um, you know... I talked about the MHC complex earlier. You know, we may not be aware that somebody is an optimal match, but if we smell their, um, you know, BO from a two-day-old T-shirt, we're going to rate that smell more attractive than somebody who isn't an optimal match. Um, we will, um, parts of our brains will light up when we smell certain compounds. It, you know, it, so there's a lot of information that people without even realizing, are putting out there that we can pick up. Okay, So we have to be aware that it's out there and that it, they, those are cues, which, of course, is what we, in reading your book, we, we get a lot of information in that area. I want to just kind of, because this obviously caught my eye, and I'm sure a lot of others as well, but you actually got your brain scan while you were having an orgasm? Yes. Yeah, okay, tell us about that. Sounds like Howard Stern. Uh, well, uh Basically, you know, what's really interesting to me is so often when science, especially science about love and relationships, uh, gets portrayed in the news, you get these sensationalist headlines, and you don't really know after reading the article what happened. So I thought, you know what, I need to 
actually participate in some studies. And this wasn't the only study that I participated in, but, it, of course, it's getting the most attention um, because I really wanted to know what people were looking at. So Barry Kamasarik, who is this legendary uh, orgasm researcher at Rutgers University, is trying to basically plot the timeline of the orgasm. Um, the truth is, you know, we know a lot about the mechanics of sex, uh, what's happening downstairs, but not a lot about what's happening upstairs. And, you know, there's always that, that cliche about the brain being the most important sex organ, but I think we all know that it's true. You know, it's a cliche for a reason. Um, and so he is scanning people in the fMRI as they build up to and then have an orgasm and then afterward to see what brain systems come online when. Um, and, of course, this is important just for our understanding of sex and orgasm. And, uh, you know, of course, there's a spirited debate about, uh, you know, whether females have orgasms, what their purpose is, et cetera. Um, but also we just need to know more about normative function. Wait, I have uh, to, uh, there is controversy about whether or not females have orgasms? Or depending on who you ask, there are apparently still some who don't believe that women well, it's not that they, it's not the same as the male orgasm, which I would say, well, yeah, because we don't, you know, we don't ejaculate, so of course there are going to be some important differences. Um, there's a lot of debate in there. Some say that it's just some kind of, you know, vestigial throwback, uh, evolutionary throwback from the male orgasm. There's, there's a lot of uh, debate there about sort of its purpose, um, you know, whether it's normal, whether it's, it's, it's there's a lot of, lot of interesting debates going on there. And the truth is we just really don't know all that much about it. Okay, so what um, did we learn, though, from your orgasm in terms of how your brain functioned? We, that study yielded two really, really interesting results. The first is um, just mapping this timeline from start to finish of what brain areas come online. And so, of course, as you might imagine... You start with the sensory areas coming online. There's sort of a buildup. Um, you see the prefrontal cortex, which is uh, an area involved with judgment, uh, decision-making, planning, but also referential thought, self-referential thought. Um, and then this blast of uh, the nucleus accumbens at the end, which is an area that um, is dopamine-rich. It sends all this pleasure, uh, you know, pleasurable dopamine. Um, but the other really interesting thing that came out of this study is that they also looked at imagining touches versus actually feeling touches. Um, so there were parts of the study where I didn't just have the orgasm. I was supposed to uh, do Kegel exercises and then just think about Kegel exercises. I was supposed to, um, you know, tap my finger, then just think about it, um, uh, tap my clitoris, then just think about it. Um, and what they found was that the same areas of the brain came online when you imagine these touches as when you actually felt them. It wasn't as active as actually physically touching them, but they were there. And what that tells us is, and certainly through um, Barry's work with uh, individuals with spinal cord injuries and those who can just think themselves into orgasm, is that perhaps sexual dysfunction could be helped by either biofeedback or just teaching people how to really sort of get their brain online, how to, um, you know, let go and, and think about pleasure and therefore achieve it. 
So it has real practical, that's what I was getting to. I mean, that those studying those kinds of things, like studying the process of or what goes on in the brain when you have an orgasm, really can be helpful for, um, well, for marital counseling, I mean, very, mm-hmm. in very practical terms, right, and, and uh, how you pleasure yourself and all those kinds of things. And as you say, fantasy, a fantasy can also help to, to give you a similar experience and relax you and all that, right? I believe so. Um, and I think what's also really interesting is that Barry's really focused on these big-picture neuroscience questions as well. Um, it's the same area of the brain that gets activated in both pleasure and pain, um, an area called the anterior cortex. So how do those neurons know when a sensation is painful versus when it's pleasurable? How do they make that distinction? That could be something very important to know for potential um, pain targets. You know, people who have chronic debilitating disease and, you know, they either don't want to use, um, you know, opiates or maybe they're, you know, if they're addicts, maybe there's something else that could be there that could, you know, relieve that pain by understanding that process um, without being, have the risk of addiction or the side effects. And I also think it's useful in terms of, I mean, you were talking earlier, you know, people doubting whether women have orgasms, but really doubt, or really questioning or just asking the question and or stating it, I don't know, that uh, men and women have different types of orgasms. So if you want to have, se- you know, sexual compatibility, it would be really important to s- study that process, orgasms in men as well as women and what goes on in your brain so mm-hmm. that they can become compatible. And, I, I mean, this, when you're looking at the biology, I mean, obviously we, we have different stuff downstairs. So you can't expect the orgasms to be exactly the same because there's sort of different mechanical issues going on. Um, but that being said, um, work has shown that for the most part there's a lot of overlap in the actual, if you sort of remove just those mechanical issues, to say ejaculation or um, you know, uh, clenching of the muscles um, around the, the vulva, um, when you take away sort of those mechanical things, there's not a lot of difference between the brain activity and orgasms in men and women. And I think that that's important as well because there are a lot of biases, especially in, in sexual research, and we're told a lot that... You're breaking up a little bit here. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, there are a lot of biases, I think, in sexual research. There's this idea that uh, men need to do things this way and women need to do things that way. And I, I think we really need to spend more time and do more research to find out if that's true or not. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to say goodbye. I mean, obviously, uh, there's just a lot to talk about in this whole arena. So um, uh, I'll remind listeners, you can get the book, bookstores everywhere, online. Uh, yep. Dirty Minds, How Our Brains Influence Love, Sex, and Relationships, and you can hear all about it from Kate Sukel. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great to have you. We're, we, as I said, we're going to take a short break, and coming up next is uh, Ken Solon, and uh, he's going to talk about, obviously, his new book, Act Like a Man. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart, grow profit, and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and The Growth Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business if you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest you'll want to make the golf realty network your weekly stop hosted by jane and al anderson the golf realty network is all about living where you play on the golf side You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Ken Solon, author of Act Like a Man. And uh, one of the mantras that we hear all the time, I certainly hear it, from my, and Ken is an author and is also a contributor to the Huffington Post. Um, one of the mantras that we hear often that I hear, men don't get it and they never will. Men don't get it and they never will. And, you know, women throw up their hands and kind of like, I, you know, my husband, my partner, my boyfriend, even my sons, they just don't get it. But uh, you've had Ken, uh, in terms of the work that he's done and the work that he's done, and I'm going to let you talk about it. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I think I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say men don't get it and they never will. Uh, that seems to be uh, the, kind of the fatal view that most women have of men. Uh, the fact is that most guys don't get it, but all men can, or most men certainly can. Um, act like a man is what little boys were told when they were uh, injured and they were laying on the ground bleeding. So suck it up, act like a man, and, and uh, most guys take that literally, and they also, uh, it isn't just physical pain, it's emotional pain, and they end up sucking that up as well, and so they become men who are unable to feel any pain. And uh, what I discovered <clears throat> in 20 years of working with men in a men's group was uh, that a guy who can't feel his own pain can't feel anyone else's either. So in terms of relationships, uh, it doesn't work very well uh, if a guy can't feel his pain or his partner's pain. So let's give the background for the book, because this book is for men. It's also for women. It's for all of us. It's not just for 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 men. Absolutely but, not. So the background for the book was what? 20 years ago, you started a men's group? Yeah, 20 years ago, I was uh, I was all alone in life. I had no men friends. I was just in one relationship after another after another. I kept trying to find women to make me feel better about myself instead of understanding that that was my job. So I uh, went to a, a, a Robert Bly day in San Francisco and came home and decided to start a men's group. And uh, I knew one guy, and he knew another guy. In a week, we had our first meeting. And uh, 
uh, 20 years later, we, we still meet a couple times a month. And but Ken, 20 years ago, I want to ask you how you got this, how you, I'm, I don't want to use the word coerce, but how did you get these guys to say, come into a group and we're going to talk about all our stuff and our relationships? I mean, because it does go contrary to way to like <clears throat> act like a man. <clears throat> well, that's true. Um, but what I found was that there were plenty of other men uh, who were just as lost and confused as I was. Uh, I think once it's offered to men, uh, some men have a hard time you know, being that open and honest about their lives. But the truth is most men are dying to have some place they can go to, to talk about their issues, and um, especially once some trust is developed uh, within the group that, you know, whatever, said, whatever anybody says in the group, it, you know, stays in the group. Um, but most men really do want to do this work. They just don't know where to go. Um, you know, what I write on Huffington Post, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago that got 800 comments, or almost 900, and of a lot of angry guys uh, who say, wow, it's only wimpy guys who do that kind of stuff. You know, I'm tired of hearing about emotional, you know, emotional awareness. And uh, that's what I teach men is to empower themselves. And what that means is to become emotionally aware and then emotionally in control. Uh, that's real empowerment. That's what it means to act like a man, is to be aware of what's going on around you in terms of your feelings and be able to control those feelings uh, at least enough so you can be uh, useful as a father, partner, uh, friend. How does that set you up, let's say, many, and I think it's changed in a, in a good way. I think we're making some progress that, that the, you know, I raised three boys and I, oh, I was aware of exactly what you're saying. Don't ever say to them, act like a man, or, or you know, suck it up, or don't cry, or, you know, I really was tried to be very conscious of that. But, you, you know, I'm not the only one who's in their environment. They go to school, they go to friends' house, you know, so, but, you know, when you have men who are able to who do that, let's say the men in your group, and I want to talk specifically about them, um, how do they fit in with the rest of the male world, to, you know, watching the football games at the bar on Saturday afternoon? Well, the truth is uh, we, we stand out. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, single women always ask me, where are all the good men? Uh, you know, all the good men are the guys who are getting together trying to become better men. Um, I, my friends and I, we ride motorcycles together, we hike together, we go to the movies together once in a while and do a boys' night out. We're not big sports guys. Uh, we'd rather get go out in, in the fresh air and get in shape ourselves. Uh, but we're not guys who sit on the couch alone watching sports. If we're going to watch sports, maybe we'll all get together. Uh, but my, I guess my thrust is to get that guy who's on his couch all alone all weekend watching sports Get them out. Get them talking to other men, uh, because once uh, men begin to talk about themselves with other men, it's hard to stop. So let's talk about each one of these men in the group and what their particular issues were. I assume sure. some were similar. They came from different backgrounds. They had different issues and different kinds of relationships with men and women in their own personal lives. Definitely. Um, you know, there was one fellow who uh been married for, I think, 30 years, and uh, had spent his whole marriage uh, uh, having extramarital affairs and kept trying to convince everybody that that was the right uh, path to take, that it was a natural thing for men to do. And he had real disparaging things to say about women. Uh, he used to say that a woman's best use was for pleasure and then he never had an intelligent conversation. And the rest of us looked at him like he had two heads 
but we waited. We were patient with him, and at some point, not too far down the road, we finally got him to dig deep into what his real issue was. Well, he'd been dumped uh, by some woman, I mean, really trashed when he was in his late 20s, uh, and he stuffed that pain because I asked him, what'd you do? And he said, I stuffed it so deep I never had to think about it again. Well, he may not have thought about it again, but it affected every relationship he ever had, uh, and it certainly affected his marriage. I mean, there was no intimacy in his marriage, and it affected his feeling about women in general. They couldn't be trusted, which is his real issue was about trust. Um, and so he discovered where that came from, and he had a chance to work his way out of that box. And that was a huge uh, move for him. How did that affect his relationship with his wife, or did he realize that perhaps he wasn't, shouldn't be with her? Or, no, no, or did... it did affect his relationship with his wife. In fact, when he finally told his story, he broke down and cried. And this is a guy who'd never cried before in front of us, and he cried because he was heartbroken. And I said, wow, what a great opportunity to go home and talk to your wife about uh, intimacy in your relationship and why it hasn't been there. And he did. He went home and he started to talk to his wife about intimacy and, and his issues. He told the truth. In fact, he started telling everybody he knew about that experience from when he was young or when he'd been unceremoniously dumped, left at a train station of all things, uh, waiting for somebody to show up who never did. What a great breakthrough. I mean, it's amazing that you were able to do that, that he was able to do that. But oh, it, it was, and he did it because, well, we pushed him, and that's the yeah. point. In these groups, we kind of push each other. This is not, uh, it's funny because a lot of the uh, guys on Huffington Post think it's wimpy uh, to, uh, for guys to sit down and talk about their issues. What I always tell them is what's wimpy is to have issues and keep inflicting them on people. Uh, to have an anger problem and keep inflicting it on your wife, your children, your girlfriend, instead of resolving it, that's wimpy. Uh, so, you know, the, it, we do push each other. Uh, it's not a place for the, to hide out or, or for uh, for wallflowers. I was uh, going to say it's not a place for wimp. It's, it's a place for the opposite. You have to have a lot of guts to be able to get up there, or not get up there, to be able to open yourself up and trust the rest of the men in the group. I mean, yes. I, from a woman's perspective, and maybe also the, the social worker in me, when I see men struggling with this, I always, to be honest, I feel sorry for them, like to have to keep that stuff stuffed inside and not be able to share it with somebody, because women will share that. You know, you can be on a bus with somebody for two hours, and, and they'll talk about... <laughs> I know. Uh, uh, you know I know, and, and it's interesting, because when I, I, when I meet men... When I give talks, I can always tell uh, the guys who've done some work, uh, some work because they can look you in the eye and tell you about their lives, and they're not shy about it. And, uh, you know, one of the things I always ask men is, you know, the next time your life falls apart, and everybody's does, who are you going to call? You know, who can you call at 3 in the morning who's going to be at your door to help you? For most guys, it's no one. Uh, for me, I got seven other guys who'd be there in 15 minutes. Yeah, uh, that's a huge uh, amount of support. Uh, we had a guy who uh, who'd had a terrible childhood. Who was whose wife was having a baby, and he was terrified uh, of being a father because he was afraid he was going to be his father, who was not a particularly uh, good fellow. And uh, there were enough guys in the group who'd been dads to be able to help him. Uh, all along uh, his uh, his child's development, we helped him for years uh, understand his son and you know be the father that he and and at the end in the end he was the father of the year. This guy was incredible. 
Uh, he ended up being a great dad. Well, another uh, great <laughs> success story. And, you know, the other side of that is just, I mean, it, it just rings so true, um, Ken, because, I mean, a woman will call up her mother, her sister, her girlfriend, her, her next-door neighbor uh, if yeah. there's an issue or if there's a problem. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. And do you think also, I don't know in your experience, but I think a lot of, you know, the things that you're working on and helping men to be able to trust each other and, and, and talk about those issues that, that affect their lives and their relationships, do you think because they can't do that, men don't live as long as women, they kind of stuff it inside and it affects their heart, they have heart attacks, they have, you know, I mean, all of these chronic diseases and the, or the things that kill them, um, they don't last as long. Well, I think it does affect their health for sure. Um, I know the more emotionally uh, uh, free I feel, the better I feel physically. And uh, I've seen guys uh, in our group, it's not unusual for a guy to start doing the work, lose weight, get in shape, because he starts feeling better about himself. Um, men do need to feel good about themselves, and it can't be the the false sense of bravado that I'm a guy and you know I'm a tough guy or whatever. It has to be real, uh, and I think that that's one of the things that uh, men discover when they get together with with one another is what does real mean, and it means feeling your pain, talking about your pain. Uh, you know, it's what's crazy is guys who get divorced get married again almost immediately, and their second marriages fail at an even higher rate than their first, and their third marriage is even higher than their second. And it's so clear. You know, you keep bringing the same issues into your next marriage and your next marriage, and, of course, you're going to fail. Uh, it failed the first time. Why wouldn't it fail the second and third time? Yeah, you're and, repeating the pattern, and if you do the same thing, you get the same thing back. Yeah, I mean, but, that's a classic definition of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do the same thing over and over, expecting a different, uh, you know, something, a different uh, result. Oh, no. And, and yeah. uh, of course, it doesn't work. Um, but now you had an abusive father. And terrible. So I, I know that even when one works, you know, on those issues or your relationship with your father, stuff co- happens later on and stuff happens to all of us that triggers some of the old kind of, you know, hurts. How do you exactly. handle that? That's exactly true. And, and uh, the one thing we all discovered was with, even though we got on top of our issues and we talked about them and we got them under control, they never really went away. Uh, and every once in a while something would trigger it and they'd come back. But what we learned was uh, to recognize when the issue came back, that feeling when it comes back and, and that sense of being overwhelmed by it, to be able to stop to pause for a moment, say, oh, yeah, here's that thing again about my father. Okay, and you, and you think about it for a couple of minutes, work on it, feel it for a couple of minutes, and then you can push it aside again because issues do keep coming up. They don't ever go away. Uh, I've yet to meet anybody who had serious emotional issues that disappeared. Uh, I think people who say they disappeared, uh, that's a magic act I, I don't know how to do. Uh, but, the, but we teach each other how to recognize uh, what, it, what it looks like when it comes back. Uh, for me, it's anger. <clears throat> My father was uh, an angry, raging, violent guy, and so I grew up not violent but angry. And it took me, uh, and the first meeting in the men's group, somebody said, let's talk about fathers. And they pointed to me and said, you started this group, you start. And, you know, 30 seconds later, I you know, was recalling stuff I had stuffed in my uh, someplace deep that guys reserve for stuff in their pain. And I started crying like a baby because it was all coming out again. Well, it gave me a chance to work through it. It took a long time, but I did work through it. 
So all of you, eight men over 20 years, uh, it's an amazing book and story, but like, can we bring it to the next generation maybe? So how, and you, you touched on it with, I think, one of the fellows, but the impact that doing this kind of work has on fathers teaching their own sons or being able yeah, to... Yeah, you know, that, uh, the fathers used to teach their sons, it's called the rites of passage, fathers used to teach their sons about how to be men, and that was until the Industrial Revolution when everybody went off to work in the factories and women became, uh, you know, the sole parent of, of young boys. Uh, so the lessons got lost. But fathers absolutely uh, can teach their sons. Uh, my, my son has a seven-year-old uh, uh, son, my grandson, and he's teaching him that it's okay to talk about how he's feeling, uh, that he wants him to talk about how he's feeling, because that's better than having him blow up uh, the, you know, the next day because he's not getting his needs met. Um, so yeah, fathers can teach their sons that, that it's actually very manly to be aware of how you're feeling, and then take some control over that. Uh, so that's the lesson fathers can teach their sons. And also that, that's going to require trust. And fathers have to develop trust with their sons. And one of the ways they can do that is to give their sons choices in life instead of telling them how things are, uh, to let their sons have their own dreams instead of telling them what their dreams are supposed to be. Uh, trust is a big issue between fathers and sons. Uh, and it's a fine line between advice and abuse sometimes. A friend of mine always says, advice is the lowest form of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my boys that. Um, <laughs> no, I think that is, that's an important point. There's always that competition between fathers and sons, though. I mean, there's something that, I think that's an issue that has to be dealt with, and some of the stuff gets in the way because of the competition. You know, the, the older fa- the aging father and the mm. young man who has all of the uh, choices, you know, and prowess and sex and yeah. opportunities that the father doesn't have anymore or they're different or more limited, because that gets in the way, too. Yeah, it, it can. Uh, I was a single dad. Uh, in fact, I raised a baby uh, from one to six uh, by myself, and then I ended up raising a couple of teenage boys uh, by myself, too. And I realized that I said to my son one day, my oldest son, who was 15 at the time, I was giving him some advice, and he said, you know, Dad, this is my life. And I thought, ah, ouch, yeah, this is your life. So some of these choices are your choices, and that was a good lesson for me to remember that it was his life, not mine. Uh, He wanted to, I was a a war protester during Vietnam. He joined the Marines. I Mm -hmm. mean, my God, that was pretty hard for me. Uh, But, you know, I respected him, and I respected his reasons, and I didn't try to talk him out of it. Uh, I showed him that I respected him, and I trusted his ability to make good decisions in his life, and he has ever since. But you did good things for him because he felt comfortable to say to you, Dad, this is my life. Yes, uh, he knew there was no consequences uh, because he. Well, I always respected uh, my son's uh, my son's uh, independence uh, and and their desire to be independent men. I was a, a young guy who was wanting to be independent. I had a father who didn't think that was a very good idea. He kept wanting to pound his idea of manhood into me, and I thought, no, nah, I'm never going to do that to anybody else. Uh, so I think fathers need to take their feet off the pedal a little bit and let their sons do some driving. Uh, listen to them, uh, because whatever your son's hopes and dreams are, 
you need to get behind them, not in front of them. You need to get behind them and help them. What would you? I mean, you said you mentioned. I mean, you were a single father, and um, I'm curious. I mean, you were you raised a baby. You say from one to six. Yeah, I had a son when I was in college. I, I married a girl. She went back to Europe, where she, I'd met her in Europe when I was going to school, and um, uh, I was just out of college, just starting my career actually, and found myself with a baby. And there was no daycare back then, and you know I had to invent a whole new world for myself, and I did. Um, I decided that you know, my whole life at that point was just my career and my son, and that's what I poured my energy into. Um, was the two, was those two those two vehicles? But especially my son. He and I. He's forty four now. We're we couldn't be closer. Uh, we're like best friends now. And I'm and I'm watching him with his son. And it. Uh, I just saw him over Thanksgiving and with his son. And it's so beautiful to to see their relationship. There, there's such respect uh, between them. And if his son acts up, all he has to say is, "No, no, son. We talked about this member." And my grandson says, yeah, okay, Dad. And then that's it. Uh, you know, that's because there's great trust uh, between them and respect. Well, you do, I mean, you're kind of, you practice what you preach, I guess, is what I'm saying. But, you know, we have a few more minutes left. What about the group? Where do you, I mean, this is 20 years, eight men. Um, now you're not old guys, but getting old, but middle-aged. So yeah. where does it go from here? Um, I suppose we'll, I, I, there's no sense that we'll ever stop, uh, because we're all friends now, too. Uh, we became close friends over the years, and I think that that didn't, that didn't hurt us at all, that we became friends. You know, we do have some, we have a lot of common interests. Um, what I'm trying to do is get, you know, a lot of guys go on my website, you know, kensolan.com, and they ask me, how do I find a group? Do you know a group in, Buffalo or Washington D.C. or or Denver, and I say no, but you can start your own. You can look on Craigslist for a group, but you can start your own group. And if you go on my website, it tells you how to do it. My book is a handbook for guys who uh, to start men's groups because it tells you exactly what it looks like. Uh, there are other guides out there about rules and regulations. You know, we don't have any rules except we try not to give each other advice, but. Um, my book is really for women. It's this is what it looks like. You'll never hear men. A woman will never hear men talk about uh, relationships or women or each other in, in the way they do in this book because it's real. And as soon as a woman walks in the room, the conversation changes. So if women want to find out what it is that men really uh, talk about uh, when they're doing this work. Act like a man. I'll tell them that. Um, you know, I look at the reviews on Amazon, and I, I don't know most of those people, of course, and uh, they're all five-star reviews. And some woman said recently, this was a reality show in a book. <clears throat> and <laughs> That's it helped so her. exciting. That, it, that really is. KenSolan.com and Act Like a Man is the name of the book, but is, and, and you can get it at everywhere, bookstores everywhere, and go to Amazon.com. Look at the review. You're saying five-star reviews. How many, you know, just kind of winding up the conversation, how many groups do you think have been started, or how many are there all over this country? Uh, very few, uh, very yeah. few. And, and, in fact, um, I think less than 1% of men are actually doing this work, and it's mostly because they don't know it's possible. 
Um, it isn't that men don't want to do this. Most men, I always, they always ask me at the end of the talk, I don't know any guys, how do I do this? And I explain to them, you only need to know one other guy because he'll know somebody and they'll know somebody. That's how I started my group, and we, and we had our first meeting in, in uh, less than two weeks. Um, and, and that's how it starts. It's grassroots. It's real. Uh, you know, guys, some, but there has to be one guy who's willing to make some phone calls, but it isn't very difficult. And, and once a, a group is going, I've never met a guy who wanted to give that up because that kind of support and help and, and information is invaluable, and you can't get it from individual therapy. You can't get it from any other place. When men share their experiences on an emotional level, a guy going through divorce, he can go to individual therapy and he can get some help, or he can listen to a bunch of other guys who have been through divorce talk about their experience, talk about their personal emotional experiences. Uh, that's uh, invaluable information. Can't well, you could do both as well. One doesn't negate the other. Of course. Yeah, and I think sometimes we get caught up in that. Well, I'm in marital counseling or I'm in individual therapy, so. I can't do the other. I don't have time. I'm a big proponent of group work like you're doing, support. Well, I think well that, thank you. Yeah. I just, yeah. you know, my experience as a social worker for the past 25 years, uh, it works. And it's yeah, very think, powerful yeah. stuff. It very, is. Most, very most of the guys in my group have, have done some therapy at some point in their lives. Yeah. So and, and it, it certainly makes it easier to have the conversation within the group. Well, we have to say goodbye, but Ken, thanks so much for sharing all of this with us today. Thanks for having me this it's, morning. I appreciate yeah, it. It's been great. His book is Act Like a Man, and you can go to Ken's website at kensolan.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm your social worker with a microphone, Catherine Zox, and you're listening to, you have been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.